listening to The Big Album Show with Paul Dillon and Dan O'Neill. Sartre Scalio, General Secretary of the Socialist Labour Party, wishing the magnificent Manic Street breaches every success in the next century. I'm certain that their brand of music will be an inspiration to future generations, just as it is today. Their music provides an alternative. There is another way. The Manning Street Breaches tell you what it is. It's to resist inequality, injustice, and do not tolerate those who tell you otherwise. Good luck and best wishes to you all. Hello, and welcome to the Big Album Show. I'm Dan. And I'm Paul. This is your bi-weekly podcast about albums from brilliant bands celebrating big birthdays. Today we're discussing Everything Must Go by the Welsh rock band Manic Street Preachers. Released the 20th of May 1996, it was the band's first album released after the, the sad disappearance of Richie Edwards. It was a commercial success, reaching number two in the UK charts and 12 here in Ireland. Everything Must Go is a journey through many themes, from historical and political themes to personal and cultural. Paul, give us a background to the Manic Street Preachers. Indeed, Dan, as you said, uh, Everything Must Go being the fourth studio album. They kicked things off in 1992 with Generation Terrorist. They followed up with Gold Against the Soul. And then comes the Holy Bible, Dan. And uh, that is the Manix fan album. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, even after all these years, fans absolutely love it. The thing that's really interesting about being a Manix fan is that it's a bit like being part of an exclusive club or a bit like supporting a football team. Um, I suppose like supporting a football team, sometimes the Manics might let you down a little bit, but then you're always delighted the next time when there's a good comeback or when they you know, score the equivalent of a goal with a great single or a great album. Um, but Holy Bible was a, was a completely different sort of sounding uh, album to Everything Must Go. Everything Must Go was just a huge departure for the band. Um, and that's indicated in the title, Dan. Everything must go. I think it came from a play of the same name from uh, Patrick Jones, um, Nicky Warr's brother. Um, but when you think about those words, everything must go. It, you know, in one sense, it implies uh, like a fire sale, like a, something that's closing down, you know, and everything must go and have a sale. Uh, it also implies a break with the past uh, and that implies a kind of a promising future as well um, and a big clear out. Um, and that's really, you know, where the Manics were at that point in their career. Um, they, they emerged from that very difficult period with the album, which they themselves have said uh, is their best. Uh, certainly for me is their best. And that's, you know, that's a big thing to say with an, about a band with their back catalogue. Uh, something controversial to say that, of course, because the, some the real hardcore Manics fans will probably say uh, it's, well, they won't probably say, they'll definitely say it's a holy Bible. That's the one that they'll say is the best of the band albums. Uh, but for me, it's Everything Must Go. 12 tunes, uh, four hit singles, and to this day, still packs a really good, strong, emotional punch. Uh, every song is good. There isn't a bad track on it. Uh, I love the intensity of it, Dan. Uh, there's this intense sound from beginning, middle to end. And, and though it comes right slap bang in sort of the, the height of the Britpop period, it, you couldn't say it's Britpop. Um, but equally, you couldn't say it's, 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 an, it's certainly not American rock because in many ways it's a rebuke of American rock. And they had moved away from that sort of 
heavy American sound. That kind of the Guns N' Roses thing had been sort of ditched at that stage. Um, but what an album, Dan, and I think still stands the test of time, almost 25 years uh, after its release. You're listening to The Big Album Show with Paul and Dan. Please remember to subscribe, hit like, and remember to follow us on our social media platforms at The Big Album Show. I think it's 45 minutes of sheer bliss. Um, It was produced by Mike Hedges, and I think you can see, as you say, a departure from the style the Mannix had um, previous to this album. So talking about the album themselves, the band described some of the songs as having a kind of a Motown-esque, Phil Spector-esque wall of sound. Um, And you can hear things like uh, strings, harp, um, different kinds of instrumentation on various tracks. Um, Another thing about the Mannix is that as musicians, they are all incredible. Um, We know that the lyrical quality of the songs is, 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 you know, it's just out of this world. Amazing. But sometimes I think that people almost overlook the actual musicianship of the members of the band because the lyrics are so good. So if you look at say James Dean Bradfield, for for instance, some of the guitar riffs that he comes out with, um, on this album, on, on albums before this and albums after this, are just some of the most memorable guitar riffs you will ever hear. He writes songs um, in alternative tunings, like, you know, Kevin Carter and other songs. And and then on top of that, not only is he playing these wonderful uh, guitar parts, he's also singing in that, you know, some might describe it as a kind of a Freddie Mercury-esque style voice, in that he sings in quite a high register. Um, try and sing along with Manic Street Preacher songs, and and I think most lads, anyway, find it difficult to sing along with them because they're sung quite high up. Then you look at, you know, Nicky Wire, incredible bass player, incredible showman, and uh, incredible lyricist. And then, of course, you have Sean Moore, not only an incredible drummer, but also he is the person playing the trumpet on Kevin Carter, for example. He's a classically trained musician. He is uh, he he played at one stage with with a jazz orchestra in Wales. But before this show, Paul, I was looking back on different interviews with the band band, and one of the things that I noticed is um, Sean Moore tends to not say much in interviews. What, um, I think you can't just get a, a word in in edgeways with the two other guys, um, with, with Nikki and, and and James Dean Bradfield. For interest, you should say it though. That I mean, there's a great, there's some absolutely classic Manix performances that people should check out. Uh, check out their '90s shows. Um, the in, in their Glastonbury '90s shows in the '90s. There's a Reading show that they did in in, in the '90s. Check out Louder Than War, which is about the uh, show they did in Cuba in 2001. Um, and on that, you'll see um, you, you, there's, a, there's an interview with Castro and uh, the band. I mean, Castro kind of turns up uh, when they're in Santa Clara and, and he comes into this crowded room and the band are there. But one of the interesting things about it is he's talking to Nicky and, and James Dean Bradfield for almost the entire conversation. They, they're the ones to the forefront. 
But then Castro kind of reaches out and he and he brings Sean Moore into the conversation at the end and he kind of puts his hand on, on Sean's shoulder and, and Sean just looks at him uh, kind of, <laughs> he, he looks a little bit scared to be honest. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And one of the interesting things about about the band for me is the they are, they are at their best when you see them live or when you hear them live. Um, they're great on record, there's no doubt about it. But seeing them live and, and, and it's just, it's a fantastic experience. I've seen them. Um, the first time I saw them was back in 2002 in the Point Depot. Um, they played, would you believe, two nights in the Point Depot then. And that was a time when they were, they, they, you know, so, so in, in more recent years, they tend to play the Olympia Theatre in Dublin. Um, but then they could they played a number of big arena shows uh, in the Point in the 90s, including Fail, I think, in 1996. Um, that first show, I, I wasn't, I remember, I remember thinking it wasn't the best gig I, I ever saw um with the manics but uh, some of their later shows have just been absolutely fantastic for me um and you know the ones in the olympia you know always stand out the, i saw the, the holy bible tour there and yeah, as you know you could see the the intensity of the the relationship between the fans and the band and that's one of the really really interesting things i mean about manix fans they're incredibly loyal to the band uh, oftentimes the feelings are very intense uh, the relationship between the band and the fans can be intense i remember the gig in 2007 um Certain certain uh, members of the audience were wearing the balaclavas, um, you know, just throw back to, to to the band in their early years. Mm-hmm. So there is that kind of relationship between the band and the fans. Um, there's a loyalty there, um, and I kind of I suppose a very strong bond. Um, have you seen them live yourself, Dan? Yeah, I'm 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 happy to say I've seen the Manic Street Preachers three times, um, and. The, the gig that stands out to me was the first time I saw them. And let me just tell you about that gig because it, it, it really was a standout experience for me. So it was way back in 2001. It's it, it, 20 years ago this May because the gig was on the 4th of May 2001. And it was part of the Heineken Green Energy Festival, which used to be a festival that happened um, in different locations around the country. But this year they had it in a place in Dublin called Smithfield. So it's a, a kind of a, a square in Dublin near the river, river Liffey, and it had just been refurbished. This is uh, was in the height of uh, a period known here in Ireland as the Celtic Tiger, where, where the country was kind of doing well for the first time. Um, so there was this kind of feeling of uh, things on the up. And as I say, the place had just been refurbished. To give you an example, they had just installed these massive, 12 massive masts in the square, uh, they were they were about thirty foot high with two meter tall flames coming out of them. And um, now the masts are still there, but I can count on two fingers how many times I've ever seen the flames lighten because they're probably too expensive to to, to have on all the time. But they were on during this Mannix gig, and it added to the atmosphere. Um, it was the last year of 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 the punt, and I was just gone fifteen, and my friend had got two tickets to see the Manic Street Preachers supported by JJ72. So JJ72, they were an Irish band led by a guy called Mark Greeny. They came on, they did a decent set, and at the end of the set, Mark Greeny picked up his Fender Stratocaster and bashed it off the floor of the stage in a kind of a rock and roll clash style, uh, you know, let's, let, you know, let's smash things up um, at moment. And then the Manic Street Preachers came on afterwards. And they started with Found That Soul, a great tune. Um, but you had uh, Nicky Wire 
he comes on, he has his feather boa wrapped around the mic stand. He had um, a kilt. He later changed halfway through the set and put on a lovely white dress and a Burberry hat. Um, but they, they, they played an incredible set list and a large portion of the set list was made up of songs from Everything Must Go. And at the end of the gig, as if to show the youngsters in JJ72 how rock and roll was really done, Nicky Wire decides to smash up the stage. He, 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 he jumps up on top of some of the amps on the stage. He, he, he kicked over or, or pushed over uh, a large Fender amp onto the ground. I believe he threw his bass through the drum kit. He went hell for leather and, it, and, and, and the, the, the crowd erupted. They actually finished the set that night with the song uh, Design for Life. And as a 15-year-old, standing there in that crowd with the energy of the fans and the energy of what was going on on stage, um, it, it was just incredible. But a, a funny thing was, it shows you how lax things were, were at the time. So because it was a, you know, a, a music festival and there was drink being served and all the tickets had said... Uh, 18-year-olds, under-18s must be accompanied by an, an adult. So me, 15-year-old Dan and his 15-year-old mate rock up to the gig and we're standing in the queue for the gig and the bouncers say, um, how's it going, lads? Uh, do you have any ID there? And uh, we said, uh, no, we don't. And they said, what age are you? And I was honest with them. <laughs> I said, uh, well, I'm 15. And they said, well, you know, it's uh, over-18s. And I said, oh, yeah, I did. And... Um, You'll never believe what they did. They, they said, do you have a mobile phone? I said, I do. And they said, well, come over here. And they took my mobile phone off me and they rang my mom and they asked my mom, did I have permission to go to the concert? And when she said, yeah, they said, yep, yeah, go in, fire ahead. So we were able to go to the gig. But it's just funny how, uh, how times have changed, you know. It, it is, Dan. It's, and, and, and funny to think, about the band at that stage, um, because of course they had, had um, Everton Must Go, they'd had This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours, and then they had Know Your Enemy, and that's the tour uh, that you that you saw them on, um, which was the, t- the same tour that they played. Know Your Enemy was the, was the album they, they visited uh, Cuba in the aftermath of as well in 2001. And of course, one of the things is people talk about the Rolling Stones being the first rock band to play Cuba. Not only did the, did the Rolling Stones not play Smithfield in Dublin, um, you know, they, they wrote the the Manic Street Preachers beat them to Cuba as the first Western rock band uh, to play. Um, so so about a decade and a half before the Rolling Stones played Cuba, the Manic Street Preachers did. Of course, nobody in Cuba knew anything about them or knew who they were, uh, but they played the Karl Marx uh, Theatre in Havana. And um, anyone who's seen them live, uh, I think, will have memories and you know it's it's been it's often a very special experience. And one of the interesting things, Dan, I think that you see at Mannix shows is that it's not a passive kind of relationship. It's not the band up there doing their thing and then the fans simply responding. There's a feeling that people almost feel and you know it's remember that 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 thing that that the fourth member of the band it's you guys that there there is that sense of it with the Manic Street Preachers that the band and the fans. Uh, are very much interrelated and um, there's a lovely, lovely moment. And, you know, if everything must go, when you think about it, I mean, look, it's it's the classic Manic song. It's the, it, it is just a great, great tune. The best version of that song for me then is the version they play and the Manic Millennium gig, uh, which was a huge uh, stadium gig they did just on the, on the, on the eve of the new millennium back in 1999, if you can cast your mind back. 
and the show was a big it was it was a huge show um i think it was 50 60,000 people but the bbc used it as the, as they went live and and ushered in the new millennium on the bbc and went around went went right right right, right around the world it was but it was a, it was a, it's a fantastic gig and many of the songs on everything must go are played in that gig and you know there's a great moment just before they do uh, a design for life um you know uh, J- uh, james dean bradfield prays tribute to the various members of the band he does a lovely tribute to Nikki, uh, sorry to, to to you know to Nikki and Sean, uh, but also to Richie Edwards, and um, and just before they kick into uh, a design for life, he says to the fans, "You've done us proud." And there's a sense that it's the band and the fans are 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 what the, are what people are seeing, um, and it's just a lovely, lovely moment. And that version of a design for life, at, at one point, James Dean Bradfield has kind of dropped his guitar, so you really get this very, very nice. Um, uh, version of it, which is far less rocky uh, than the normal version. But everything must go down. I mean, it has to be said, it is the standout track on a standout album from a standout band. Would that be one of your top three? Um, well, well, sorry, a, a Design for Life would be certainly one of my top three. A Design for Life, this song is certainly one of my top three for sure. How about you? Um, yeah, yeah, it would, it, it would be, it would be up there. And I think you can't talk about. In either the song design for life or, or the Manic Street Pre- Preachers without kind of um, talking about their, I suppose, their, their, their politics and their, their, their intellectualism. Like this is a band that weren't afraid to deal with really kind of complex issues of things like class, culture and uh, design for life deals with all of those things and, and and indeed history you know i mean the first opening lines of the song libraries gave us power then work came and made us free like those lines are on fire um they, they conjure up dark images um you know the darkest images immediately um, and 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 then there's there's a reflection on how society is 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 governed, and you know, the, then you have that roaring chorus of "We don't talk about love. We we only want to get drunk, uh, and and we are not allowed to spend." You know, like those lines encapsulate so much in so few lines, and 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 also they they encapsulate kind of conflicting emotion and uh in a way i've kind of never heard yeah and it's 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 just an amazing song and amazing lyrics and everything about it is a everything about it is special and it gets right up there to the almost to the top of the charts goes to number two and two in the charts i mean they did have two number one singles and if you tolerate this your children will be next uh did get to number one and masses against the classes also got to number one and that's sometimes the tune is a little bit forgotten about Masters Against the Classes because, uh, and often you don't hear it played at shows, uh, but it's another really, really good tune. I mean, for me, Everything Must Go, it is defined by that sort of big stadium rock sound, which is still very emotional at the same time. Um, so, I mean, I absolutely love um, A Design for Life. I love Everything Must Go, the, the title track from the album, which is addressed, you know, more or less to the fans um, I just hope you will forgive us, but everything must go. Mm. And again, it's impossible to imagine any other band other than the Manic Street Preachers having a song like, like that one. Um, but for me, actually, my, my probably my personal favorite on the on the album uh, is the track Australia, um, which I think was the fourth single, if memory serves me correctly, uh, from the album. And um, 
and again, it, 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 what, it, what it's all about is a kind of a sense of escapism. Um, and Australia is the farthest point of wor- in, in, in the world away from, from Wales. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the lyrics in the album, Dan. And there's just, some, again, these are neat, real, they're Nicky's lyrics. And, you know, when he says, I don't know if I'm tired, I know, don't know if I'm ill. My cheeks are turning yellow. I think I'll take another pill. And there's just, again, it's that urgency and that intensity of it that just grabs you. Um, later, I think that, that song Australia was used uh, in a, uh, an advertising campaign for Australia for for tourist uh, purposes, but that's the manic <laughs> yeah. the many and sides of the manic street preachers. Dan, it was also used. Do you remember there was a TV show called a Renford Rejects about a, a a school football team? It was it was set in in, in the UK, um, but it was one of these kind of uh, kids shows. But weirdly enough, Australia was the theme tune to to the TV um, show. But it is an upbeat song about escapism. Um, definitely upbeat in terms of its 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 sound. Not necessarily all its lyrics, but uh, yeah, I'd agree with you. It's a really really good, powerful song. The other single from the from the album, "Everything Must Go," was a single. The other single, of course, from the album um, was "Kevin Carter," mm. um, which. It, it 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 slightly divides opinion for me. It's one of the the the, the, the just slightly weaker tracks on the album. It's about the photographer Kevin Carter, and and he, he again there's a real it packs a real emotional punch, and um, and it's 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 a it's a classic manic song because you know that soaring chorus that's there, mm. and it it it's sing along, but equally you know what you're singing about is a very serious topic. Yeah, well, for me, it, it, I actually have that down as one of my top three songs on the album. Um, the lyrics written by Richie. Um, the guitar, wonderful. I mentioned it earlier on, written in a kind of an open G tuning, which makes it sound unusual. Um, yeah, written, only the Mannix could write about a photographer like Kevin Carter and make it into a successful chart-topping song. You know, Kevin Carter, for people who don't know, he was um, a South African photographer, and he was uh, responsible for taking famous photographs, but disturbing, very, very disturbing photographs. And I, don't, I it's probably not to show to get into the the, the the moral argument around his, his, his uh, photographs and all this stuff, but he won various prizes for photographs like... Uh, one of the one of the ones that stands out um, is called the vulture and the little girl, a harrowing photograph. And unfortunately, Kevin Carter sadly um, died by suicide at age thirty three. Um, so the, the the content, lyrical content of, of the song, is incredibly incredibly heavy. Um, but love the music, love Sean Moore's uh, trumpet solo. Um, again. A trumpet solo in the middle of a rock song. Uh, yeah, it's it's not unheard of, but it's 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 just they just it just works uh, so well uh, on this song. Um, really love this song. Really love another it. another brilliant track down off the album is the girl who wanted to be God. Oh yeah, and that's the, the lyrics in that were co-written by Nicky Ware and Richie Edwards, and that's just there's a real triumphalist feel off that song, isn't there? There is, yeah, yeah, really, really strong, um, strong chorus. Definitely, you can imagine when you listen to that song, you can imagine those concerts that we were at and how the crowd yeah. reacts to it. I really love small black flowers that grow in the sky, um, and Elvis impersonator Blackpool Pier as well. I, I, it's just a, they're, they're slightly less intense. I wouldn't call them slow, and um, but they, they are, they are more. 
they, they haven't got the loud, the, the loudness, the consistent loudness of some of the other songs <laughs> on the album. And they kind of break it up quite well. And, and um, it's a great way to start a, an album with Elvis impersonator Blackpool Pair because it, it really sets a lovely scene. It's like a novel. It's like the first page of a novel. It sets a lovely scene where he says, 20 foot high on Blackpool Promenade. I mean, again, no, one's, no one else could sing it like James Dean Bradfield, but no other band uh, would start an album with lyrics like that. Yeah, a, a great song. And it's funny that you mention it's kind of a, a soft song because James Dean Bradfield, when he first kind of put uh, the lyrics to music and brought it to the rest of the band, his initial version apparently was a really kind of heavy post-punk speeded up song and the rest of the band said uh not so much we're not going for that on this album so they 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 brought down the tone of it and i think for the better because because it it is really good and it kind of just it has that kind of sarcastic uh you know commentary in it which looks at the meaningless, I suppose, of of of, of popular yeah. culture in many ways, and uh, I mean, I mean, things get pretty deep pretty fast with the Manic Street do. Preachers, don't they? <laughs> yeah. They I really mean, do. <laughs> they, they they really do. I, I, I mean, it's it, it but there, there was something about both their show, their live shows, and about their music, which is trying to kind of show a better way, isn't it? it, it they're trying to lift lift the lift the sort of horizons of the fans to oh, yeah. see something different, you know. And to see something better, maybe it, it, it's almost like a political manifesto, uh, their, their music. Um, and I think they play with that very, very well. I think they're very aware of what they're doing there. Definitely. They're, like the manics are so deep that even when they're not trying to be that deep, I read deeply into their lyrics. <laughs> right. Because when I first kind of listened to Everything Must Go, which we mentioned earlier on, and as you say, Everything Must Go, the song. Like it is a mess, like Nicky Wire himself says, it's a message to the fans about kind of the, the, the change of direction of the band, right? But when I read it, I suppose I'm not wrong in saying this because there's that school of literary criticism which which suggests that it's the listener or the reader that brings the meaning to the song. So I'm, I'm coming at it from that angle. But I kind of initially thought... It was uh, a reflection on kind of the Thatcher Reagan period, the Cold War and the closure of mines in Wales. Because now this is a bit of a hot take, but bear with me on this, because if you look at the lyrics, right, there's a a lyric like Escape from Her History, which I thought echoed uh, Fukuyama's 1992 comment on uh, the fall of the Soviet Union being the end of history. And there's another another line that they say, freed from the century with nothing but uh, memories um, and various other lines like that. And then, of course, the, the title, Everything Must Go, I thought it kind of uh, suggested a connection with the sale of public assets. <laughs> so I was reading far too deeply into the song, but um, it's definitely a, a good hot take, I think. That, that that's a that's a very good hot take, Dan. And, and I mean, one of the interesting things about the Manic Street Preachers is they, they 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 constantly throughout their career they look back and they look forward. Um, and when you listen to a tune like "The Next Jet to Leave Moscow," which is on Fu- Futurology, which you know was I think a twenty fourteen album uh, by the band, um, he says the lyrics are um, an old jet of commie walking in red square with red diffusion eyes of yesteryear. I'm the biggest living hypocrite you'll ever see because the market never lines and your conscience is so clear. And, um, you know, the Manics 
lyrics uh, are subject to debate. Uh, there's, you know, they can be very, very clear and very, very obvious. And then you can also read quite a lot into them, as you've just done there. Um, and that's the art in it, isn't it? Really, I mean, that's and and again, that's they're able to do this, and they have the confidence to do it as well. Um, and look, you get criticism for doing that as well because they don't always get it right. But many, many times they do absolutely get it right. And I think that's one of the reasons why fans have such a connection with the band. It's the emotion, it's the passion, and it's what that music comes to mean to you. I mean, it's it, maybe it's old fashioned, but this is music that means something, isn't it, Dan? And I can I have a very, very strong memory of, say, cast my own, my own mind back 20 years ago when I started college. It wasn't uncommon. It was There wasn't that many kind of, you know, lefties, but of, of the lefties that there were hanging around, it was very common that they'd have a little satchel or a little bag on their back and they'd have, they'd have stitched in, you know, that it was a little like a badge of Che Guevara um, and maybe something about Genoa and the anti-capitalist protests. <laughs> and then they'd have something about the Manic Street Preachers. It's that kind of band, you know, um, and it really means something to people um, and you've got to love it. And, and you know, th- we, we saw this ourselves, Dan, when we put out on social media that we were talking about the band. Uh, we probably won't mention names. Some of them are, are prominent prominent people on, on Irish Twitter, <laughs> uh, you know, but, uh, you know, people were, you know, very, very passionate about the band. Um, somebody commented that back in the day before the internet, actually being able to decipher those lyrics was a real, real challenge. And people often got them wrong because mm-hmm. they'd be listening to James Dean Bradfield and, you know, they, they'd misunderstand them from his accent. Um, but again, it's the sort of band that people used to go and say, yeah, let's figure out what they're trying to say here, like a poem, uh, like a novel, like a film, or people try to figure out the meaning. And there's not that many bands that can do that, certainly not in the mainstream. I, funny that you mentioned college, right? Because I have a memory of you in college and because uh, we went to college together and um, various stages of our college career, I suppose you'd say. But I remember um, one time walking through Belfield campus, which is the college God, where what did I say? University Do- College Dublin is. But no, it, it was around 2007, it must have been, because the album Send Away the Tigers was out. And yeah. we were just taking a stroll and it was, I remember having this massive conversation with you about the Manics. It was kind of, uh, we, we both discovered that each of us were Manics fans and, 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 and you were mad into uh, the, the single that was out, Your Love Alone Is Not Enough. And we were just kind of, we were having the kind of conversation we were, ha- were having today, uh, just just uh, walking, walking around. Um, but, you know, you could talk about the Manics for hours and yeah. hours and hours because they're just so they're so brilliant they're so uh deep uh, they're so kind of intellectual but saying that they're also just music lovers themselves and they're yeah. not afraid to just enjoy music because you know you, you talked about them having a few misses as well as hits and it's true they did and and but but not in, in a bad way. I think they have that they have the misses because they love music so much. And I'll tell you what I'm talking about. So they've done cover versions of songs like "Last Christmas" by Wham and "Umbrella" by uh, Rihanna, right? Um, and like I'm not mad into those songs necessarily, and I don't know whether it it kind of fits with the Manics image. But I love the fact. They're not afraid to do covers of those songs and they just enjoy the music. And uh, I, I think it's so refreshing to see a band who can go from writing really uh, 
dark, political, emotional, historical songs, um, to see them going from that to doing a Rihanna cover, it's just, uh, it's, it's just amazing, you know? Yeah, and, and, and it's, it, it, it is, and, and there, there oftentimes is a great sense of fun. And, you know, when you see the band live, you, you see that they talk about people who are absolutely loving it. Like, you know, they, they, they often come across as people having a serious, you know, they're, they're really present. They're really enjoying it when they're up on stage. And, and, and you know, there, there is a sense that, you know, I've had when I've seen the Manics that the, the relationship between the band and the fans, it's not the typical relationship between band and fans. Um, people love them, but it's almost as if it's all, you're all equals together. Uh, Mannix and the fans and, you know, the, the band, the, the fans being the, the fourth member of the band, you kind of get that sense. Um, and it's one of the things that I really love about the band. I love Mannix fans myself. I think Mannix fans are absolutely fantastic. I mean, down through the years, I see this, there's a certain number of people who I always meet at Mannix fans and they're great, great people. And, you know, I've often bumped into people that I haven't seen in years. Oh, I haven't seen you since, since I last saw the Mannix. Um, you know, the fans are loyal to them and they, they come back again and again and again. And I think that's good. So fair play to all the Mannix fans. Another song on off the album, Dan, that I absolutely love uh, is the song that completes the album. It's track 12. Um, it's no surface all feeling. How do you feel about that track, Dan? I think that is a real, I think that is a great, it's a great, great way to end an album. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, bands traditionally, they, they'd start with, you know, a fast sort of song to bring you in. They start with a kind of slower song to bring you in. And then, you know, maybe bands would finish with a nice quiet song at the end, almost to put you to sleep. You listen to the whole album before you go to bed. <laughs> and then the last song puts you to sleep. They finish with a real, heavy uh, rock tune that just you know you just want to get up and start singing along to it don't you oh yeah it's it's it, it definitely leaves you on a high uh you know again lyrics absolutely class really kind of a shoegazy style heaviness um heavy guitars distortion all of that definitely leaves you on a high and you're right i've never i've never thought about it like that uh, like i do love going to sleep uh to, to a good album but uh yeah this is definitely not an album that puts me to sleep because it as you say there's no bad track on on the album and uh what a way what a way to finish a masterpiece um yeah it's a, it's a brilliant song yeah no surface all feeling also has um guitar work from richie edwards on it uh, which i think was the only song where his guitar was ever uh, actually recorded and and and, and um available in, in that way so there's something a little bit special i think about that song from that uh, point of view as well and you know some great live versions of that around as well so something that, that if you're not familiar with the band and you're not familiar with the album uh, you might enjoy so then almost 25 years on um the 20th of may 1996 everything is different now i think it's fair to say uh the record industry has changed music has changed bands have changed it's kind of difficult to imagine a band like the Mannix today, but they're still going, uh, you know, emerging today, rather. The Mannix themselves, of course, are still going strong. Uh, they'll never be repeated. There'll never be another Mannix, but hopefully we'll have them around with us for a long time yet, producing great music. Um, the the, the Mannix will be in town in Dublin next summer, supporting the Killers. The last time I saw them was supporting Bon Jovi, so I will be at that show uh, and watching them support the Killers next summer in Dublin. They're also playing a gig... Um, 
um, in support of the NHS uh, in Britain. It had to be postponed. Um, I, I can't quite recall where the, the venue is, but they're doing um, they're doing that show for, for, and that's very typical of them. They they say they know a lot of people uh, working in the NHS, so they're doing a, a special show for NH workers, NHS workers. So fair play to them. Um, I think Liam, Liam Gallagher is doing one as well. Very different character to the Mannix, but there you go. Um, so then not- overall, I mean, I'm just going to give my little hot take on, on this album. I mean, this for me, Everything Must Go. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's very easy to have a personal relationship with an album like this. Uh, it can, it's, it's something that can come to mean a lot to you. Um, so I would strongly recommend it to people if they haven't heard it, go and get it. Everything Must Go. And listen to it from start, listen to start, middle and finish. It, it's got a, it's 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 got a it's got everything for me. It's got great tunes. There's a Motown vibe running through it, as you say. Uh, there's that sense that you could hear a song like um, "A Design for Life" on a jukebox, uh, which was what it was intended to be. Um, for me, it's a very very special album. I'm going to give it a very very healthy nine out of ten. Um, there's no there's no. I mean, we haven't gone ten out of ten quite yet. Um, maybe sometime we will. But for me, it's nine out of ten and uh, a great album by a great band. Absolutely love them. Highly recommend it. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I it, it it means the world to me as well. It's it's one of those albums that kind of it was it was part of the soundtrack to my life at that at, at that period of time, kind of my my early teens, and uh, and it's one of those albums that I've always continued to turn back to, and every time I turn to it, I hear something new, and I delve into the lyrics and the music in a way I didn't before. It's absolutely remarkable that the band managed to pull off such a, a wonderful masterpiece, given the space they were in in terms of of, of suffering the loss of a very close friend. Um, and, and, and people often say this is the first Mannix album without uh, Richie on it. But I disagree because Richie's music and lyrics is all over this album and his influence is there. Um, it's 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 a. A fantastic album and um, it really brought the Mannix into uh, the mainstream for want of a better phrase it it it, it 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 brought their music to to a new audience and it set them up for the decade ahead and um, so for me I am going to completely agree with you I think this is deserving of uh, a nine um, if not more um, and I definitely recommend it to people. Um, I really yeah. enjoyed, you know, looking into this album, listening to it again. And uh, you mentioned some of the stuff on YouTube. YouTube is full of brilliant Mannix material. There's loads of documentaries um, loads of gigs. It's it's just it's just there's so so many fantastic resources. If people want to dive into the Mannix story and um, check it all out. And the best thing about being a Mannix fan is that you know there's lots more good stuff to come. And so um, for now, we'd like to thank you to, we will be back, we will no doubt be back to the Mannix on the Big Album Show. But for now, we want to thank you for listening. Just to remind everyone, please make sure you follow us on our social media at the Big Album Show and make sure to like and subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts and please spread the word. And thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate it. You're listening to the Big Album Show with Paul Dillon and Dan O'Neill.